1: Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program where we're learning each chapter in this book, Developing a Life Practice, the Path that Leads to Enlightenment. We're progressing each Sunday in a new chapter, and today we're in chapter 19, which is titled The Difficult Human Existence Sickness, Aging, and Death. In this chapter, I discuss a bit about Gautama Buddha's life story and what really motivated him to actually attain enlightenment and go on this journey to actually attain enlightenment. And as part of this, you're gonna learn about sickness, aging, and death, these difficult human experiences that we deal with in this human condition and how to actually experience them without having discontentedness as a result. It takes training of the mind of course but in order to do that you need the wisdom to understand how to actually approach these as part of your life practice and part of this difficult human existence and once you understand then these situations are no longer difficult whether it's your own sickness aging and death or if it's someone else that is close to you that maybe they're experiencing sickness aging and death and that can be awfully hard for us in the human condition with an untrained mind. But with the wisdom of Gautama Buddha's experience on this path to enlightenment, then these situations won't be difficult for you. So I would like to welcome all of you to our class today. And as always, you're welcome to ask questions as we go on our program. The way that you do that is in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. You can put those into the comment section and our moderators will see that and be sure your question gets asked during the class. Or in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow up questions directly. So just starting off with Gautama Buddha's life story and helping you to understand a bit about his life prior to this journey to enlightenment, his journey to enlightenment, and then his actually teaching career as well. All of these things are really important because you can actually learn from his experiences your goal on this path to enlightenment is not to emulate what the buddha actually did in his life but instead there's certain aspects of his life and his experience that you can actually learn from and extrapolate these lessons learned into your life so as i share gautama buddha's story with you It's not to give you a story or a ideal life that you should actually live because everybody's life is different. But there's certain wisdom that he developed along the way in his life that will really help you in your practice and I'll be sure to really highlight that as we go. So the first thing to talk about is the birth of Siddhartha Gautama. At his birth, he wasn't a Buddha yet. A person isn't a Buddha until they fulfill the three main criteria of actually becoming a Buddha. So at his birth, his name was Siddhartha Gautama. He was born to a royal family. His mom was a queen. His dad was a king. And as his mother was preparing to have birth, she made her way back to her homeland because her husband was a king of one particular kingdom and her home was in another area and as customary during her lifetime was that when you're getting ready to have a baby you would go back to your parents home and that's where you would end up having the baby so a royal caravan was assembled and brought together in order to take her back to her homeland And on this journey, she starts going into labor pains a lot earlier than what they had expected. You know, they knew that she would be going into labor at some point, but her labor came without them really realizing that was what was going to happen. So they stopped the caravan. She got out of the caravan, went over to a tree and reached up and grabbed the branch of a tree as she was experiencing these deep labor pains. And as part of Siddhartha Gautama's birth, He wasn't able to come out through the normal birthing canal, and he came out through the side of her stomach. We might call this a C-section today, but during the lifetime of Siddhartha Gautama, there wasn't the technology to actually do a C-section, so he actually came through the side of her stomach, and his mom ends up dying seven days later as a result because there wasn't the technology to be able to save her life as a result of this baby being born out through the side of her stomach. When he was born, there is a story that says that he walked seven steps as soon as he was born and lotus flowers popped up underneath of his feet and that he said in his own voice that this will be my last life. Now I share this with you because this is what you will hear. This is what you will see if you study the life story of Gotama Buddha. but. Based on what I understand, I think this was probably some embellishment about his life story, because when you have someone who's been so impactful to humanity like Gautama Buddha was during his lifetime, oftentimes as the stories get handed down from one generation to another, there's oftentimes a lot of embellishment of the story. This is the story that's actually in the Pali Canon that you can read about the life and the birth of Gautama Buddha, but I'm not sure that this is actually 100% true because we know that nothing was written down during his lifetime and it wasn't until after his death that things were written down so this aspect of him walking immediately after being born lotus flowers popping up under his feet and mm-hmm. announcing that it was going to be his last birth if this was actually true and what actually happened the next part of this story wouldn't have need to have happened so now let me share with you the next part of the story the next part of the story is that his father summoned advisors to come in and help him to understand what his son was going to become in life now if you have a baby that as soon as they're born they can walk lotus flowers are popping up under their feet and they can talk I don't know that you would need advisors to come in and actually consult with you and help you to understand what your son is going to become I think it's pretty obvious of what's going to happen with this individual so that's why I say this is probably an embellishment of the story but nonetheless we know that these advisors came in and advised the king this was kind of a standard practice during their lifetime of getting advice from kind of sages and fortune tellers and people like this to understand what's going to happen with your son. And 107 advisors came in and all of them told the king that his son was going to be a great monarch and was going to expand his territory very far and very wide. He was going to be this great leader. And of course, his dad really enjoyed hearing that. But there was one other advisor who came in the 108th advisor. And he apologized to the king and said that he's sorry that these other advisors were actually incorrect in terms of the type of leadership that his son would provide. He said, yes, he is going to be a leader, but not in the way that you think. He's not gonna be a monarch and expand your territory. He's gonna be a spiritual leader. And his father didn't like this. His father was very much wanting him to be this monarch and this king and expand his territory. So what he did is he sequestered his son into the royal palace and gave him everything that he could imagine, you know, uh, lots of beautiful clothing, lots of wonderful food, royal riches, people to take care of him, you know, from birth all the way through. He was having nothing but these pleasures of life all the things that you can imagine that a royal family would be able to afford. Well, at the age of 29, Siddhartha Gautama hadn't been outside the palace yet, and he was about to become the king, because during this period of time, you didn't become the king when your father died. You actually became the king at the age of 30. So Siddhartha Gautama, getting ready to become the king, realized that he was about to become this ruler of this kingdom that he had never even seen. He had never even been outside the royal palace. So he makes these trips outside the royal palace without his father knowing. And he takes his attendant with him. He has this trusted attendant who takes care of him and kind of advises him. These are called the four observations that we describe this. And We usually talk about it as one trip going out and seeing these four observations, but some people describe it as individual trips, that he made four individual trips outside the palace. But based on the way that I've seen it written in the Pali Canon, it was just one trip outside the palace. And he made these four observations that really changed things for how he was thinking. Because at this time, he had been raised by his stepmother, which was his mother's older sister. He had a wife and he had a child that was born, a very young child, very much an infant. And when he went out into the kingdom and he saw a dead person, he saw a sickly person, he saw an aging person, and he also saw an aesthetic or a monk, someone who had given up life seeking the truth. When he saw this aging person, he had to ask his attendant, you know, what is that? Because he had never seen a person very advanced in age like this person. And he saw that there was a lot of misery around this aging. And it was explained to him that this is what happens as you get older. You know, the human body starts to get old and decay and it starts to look this way. And it becomes very miserable sometimes as the body ages and he saw a sickly person and he saw the misery around this person and the relatives being very upset and the individual themselves being very much in despair and he had to ask you know what is that what's going on over there and his attendant had to explain it to him and he saw a corpse a dead body and he didn't know what that was and he didn't realize that at the end of this life that there's death and It was explained to him that, you know, this is what happens as you get older and as you are sickly and as you advance enough in age, then eventually the human body actually dies. And he saw that there was all this discontentedness among the relatives around the person who had passed away. And he didn't understand any of that. And then he saw this person who was meditating and was seeking a better understanding of life. And after observing the first three observations and then seeing the fourth one, he had decided that that's what he would like to do. He said that he wasn't interested in ruling over this misery and this despair that he observed in the kingdom, that what he was really interested in doing is figuring out why these things occurred and why there was so much misery and despair and displeasure during sickness, aging and death. So as he makes his way back to the royal palace, he decides he's going to leave the royal palace and move away from the palace and becoming the king and go on this journey to understand life so that he can find the answers to this sickness, aging, and death. And when he decides to leave, he decides to do it at nighttime because he didn't understand about craving, desire, attachment yet. But he understood enough that if he felt that if he said goodbye to his wife or if he picked up his son and gave a final goodbye that it would be too strong of a emotion too strong of a feeling that he wouldn't be able to leave so there's pictures and artwork of him that artists will replicate this where he kind of peeks in on his wife and his son as they're sleeping and he just kind of you know makes his way off out of the palace And as he does, he still, again, he doesn't understand craving, desire, attachment yet. So he takes with him his most favorite and prized horse, this horse that meant a lot to him. He takes this horse with him and he takes his royal attendant with him, too, out of the palace. And once he leaves the palace... He starts to have these realizations along the way that he's not going to be able to fulfill his ultimate goal by holding on to these things from the past, from his royal upbringing. So he turns his horse go and he lets his horse go. He says goodbye to his royal attendant and sends him off. And he even decides to cut off his hair during this period of time there wasn't media there wasn't tv there wasn't internet there wasn't the ability to take photos and show everybody in the kingdom who's the king who's the queen who's the prince and the princesses and things like this so the way that people knew who was part of the royal family was by their hair even boys they would grow their hair very very long And it's only someone who has lots of riches that would be able to grow their hair very long and then actually have the time and the ability to take care of the hair and keep it really nice and beautiful. For people like us who are just commoners, we would be out working in the field, we would be sweating, we would be doing labor jobs, we would be working in businesses, we wouldn't have time to brush this hair, comb this hair, wash this hair, take out the knots, do all the things you need to do in order to take care of this hair. So Siddhartha Gautama had this very long hair and he cuts it all off right towards the beginning of when he goes off out of the palace and makes his way towards enlightenment. And this is essentially a sign that says like, I'm never going back because he spent 29 years growing this hair, and there's never going to be a situation where people would believe that he was actually the king of this kingdom, having cut off his hair and not being able to have this hair. People, as he would go around the kingdom, would not even consider that he was actually the king, and he wouldn't have the respect and admiration that a king would need in order to kind of rule over the people. So by cutting off the hair, it helps him to let go of the past and let go of this royal heritage, but it also helps him to start understanding that he is not this physical body. And even today, we still cut off our hair to help us to practice in such a way that this image that we have in the physical body is not who we are as a person and helps us get closer to non-self and realizing non-self and eliminating that first fetter of personal existence view. So from there, the Buddha, who was not yet a Buddha, he still Siddhartha Gautama, ends up studying with two individual teachers. First, he takes up training with this one teacher, and his goal was to solve this discontent mind. His mind was highly discontent at this time, and he was interested in solving that problem. So he went off and studied with an actual teacher, and this teacher taught him all kinds of various things, mostly disparaging the physical body. They were doing things like starving the physical body. They were hanging themselves upside down from trees. They were piercing the physical body with metal implements, things like this. The thought was that if you cause this physical pain to the body and you could train the mind to transcend that physical pain, that then you would experience enlightenment as a result of that. But Siddhartha Gautama says that he studied with this teacher for about nine months to a year, and he got all the way to the point where this teacher had identified him as being a master of his teachings, that this teacher, this master teacher had transmitted these teachings to Siddhartha Gautama, and he said, yes, you have mastered the teachings that I share. And the Buddha mentioned, who again was Siddhartha Gautama at that time, that even having mastered the teachings of this first teacher, his mind was still discontent. He hadn't experienced any kind of peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy or any enlightenment. He still was experiencing the discontentedness. So then he moves over to a second teacher and he starts studying with this teacher. And the same thing happens, that he advances all the way to the point where this teacher declares him to be a master teacher and that there had been this direct transmission of knowledge from the master teacher to Siddhartha Gautama. But again, Siddhartha Gautama noticed that his mind was still discontent. He hadn't progressed from the time that he left the palace and experiencing this discontentedness to the time that he had studied with these two teachers. He was still experiencing discontentedness. So kind of frustrated with all of this, he goes off on his own in the forest. And when he goes off in the forest, trying to figure this out by himself. All he knows is the methods and the practices that these earlier two teachers had shared with them. So he continued to starve himself. He continued to do things to disparage the body. And he was just on the brink of death where a little girl and a mom comes and actually offers him some rice and he reluctantly accepts this rice and starts eating this rice. Because he has a realization in that moment that if he allowed the physical body to die, that the mind wouldn't stay in this life for him to actually be able to train it. So even though he had taken up this practice of disparaging the body and he took it really seriously and took it all the way to the point of death, he had the realization that there's just no way that he's going to be able to train this mind if he allowed the physical body to die. So. Despite what he had been taught in the past, he reluctantly accepts this rice and starts eating again, and he starts to kind of nourish the body. And he realizes that going in this far direction of causing mortification to the body and harming the physical body isn't the right way, but also indulging in central pleasures and just kind of engrossing yourself in food isn't the right way either. So he starts focusing on this middle way where he's not causing harm and physical pain to the body, but he's also not indulging in central pleasures either. And this is where his practice really takes off. And he really starts to notice the progress in terms of the condition of his mind as he starts learning more and more on his own. And he starts to discover this path to enlightenment. The total journey of his journey to enlightenment is six years two years with those other teachers, and then four years on his own. So while he had other teachers, these teachers' teachings didn't lead to enlightenment. It was his own journey for those four years that actually helped him to actually attain enlightenment and actually, actually attain it. So this is why we say one of the first criteria to actually become a Buddha is you need to be able to attain enlightenment on your own without the help or support of any teachers. So in his journey, his actual attainment of enlightenment came through his own independent journey. It didn't come from any kind of teachings that he learned from these first two teachers. And as he becomes more and more enlightened and he realizes that he's eliminated discontentedness in the mind, he ends up spending time around this one particular tree, Which we call it a Bodhi tree. And there's a scientific name for it too. It has a very specific shape of leaf that I'll share with you guys in a future chapter here in a few weeks. And he spends time at this tree for seven weeks contemplating whether or not he would actually like to teach other people what he's discovered. Because he knew what he had discovered and what actually led to enlightenment was so very different than anything that other people in that region of the world were practicing these other teachers that were sharing teachings in these different communities they were all claiming that they knew what enlightenment was and that they had attained enlightenment but by this point having attained enlightenment he's now Gautama Buddha he knows that those teachings that others are sharing do not lead to enlightenment but yet all these people are believing that they do So he spends seven weeks contemplating whether the world was actually ready to hear what he had to say about this path to enlightenment. Finally he decides to actually move towards where he was learning before in order to share these teachings with the people that were in his original community where he joined these first two teachers. So he starts making his way towards this area and there was five aesthetics or five monks that saw him coming and they were actually laughing at him and joking because he had meat on his bones he actually looked healthy and here they are starving themselves hanging themselves upside down from trees piercing themselves with these metal implements thinking that's what it takes to get to enlightenment so when they saw the Buddha coming they didn't know he was a Buddha all they saw was this person coming with a shaved head you know, wearing a robe and having meat on his bones. And to them, when they saw this, they attributed this to somebody who was not on the path to enlightenment because he wasn't starving himself. But he knew that he had attained enlightenment. And even though these people were laughing and joking and mocking him, it didn't hurt him because he had already attain enlightenment. He wasn't experiencing any anger or sadness or frustration or irritation. Nothing that they said to him would be able to shake up his mind. So through hearing all of this mocking and all of this ridicule that they were directing towards him, he decides to sit down, place his hand on the ground, and he calls the animals to come to where he's at. This is the first miracle, the confirmed miracle that he actually performed as a way of helping these five aesthetics realize that he had actually attained enlightenment. These five aesthetics were four of his past classmates, and one of them was one of his previous teachers from before. And when these five aesthetics saw him sit down, touch the ground, and these different animals came running from the forest towards to where he was at you know deer and birds and bear and all these different animals coming from the forest to come to where he was he just silently called them by touching the ground at that point having seen the miracle they sat down and they decided to listen to what he had to say here this is where he teaches the four noble truths his very first discourse to help them understand why they were experiencing discontentedness because they didn't understand why the mind was experiencing discontentedness. This is where he explains what discontentedness is. He explains the cause of it. He explains the elimination of it, and he explains the path forward. And by the end of his talk, these five aesthetics knew that he had discovered the truth because he was able to explain it to them in a way that they could then independently confirm through their own understanding, to see that, yes, he was indeed speaking the truth, and this is what leads to discontentedness. And then they could eliminate it through the ways that the Buddha was explaining. So he spends the rest of his life for 45 years sharing these teachings, not only with these original five, but more and more and more people started to understand that he was sharing these teachings and it was helping people. Because these first five aesthetics slowly became enlightened, and then it was common for a teacher to come together with another teacher of another community to come and discuss their teachings. And their students would come around and listen to these two teachers discuss their teachings. And there were times where the Buddha would be discussing his teachings with another teacher, and this other teacher would get angry and frustrated and irritated and kind of storm off. And the Buddha his students and this person who stormed off, their students would be able to see that this teacher wasn't enlightened. He wouldn't storm off in anger if he was actually enlightened. So in this way, sometimes the students that were gathered around that teacher who stormed off realized that their teacher wasn't enlightened and then they would become students of the Buddha. And there were even sometimes where the Buddha would talk in such ways with the teacher helping this other teacher understand the Buddha's teachings, that that teacher would then decide to now become a student of the Buddha and bring his students or her students along with them. So slowly but surely, more and more people were starting to learn the teachings of the Buddha and see the truth for themselves, that the condition of their mind was gradually improving. But during the lifetime of a Buddha, not everybody understands that that person's a Buddha. If somebody has actually studied with that person and they know their backstory, that this person doesn't have any teachers, that they've discovered the teachings by themselves and they're sharing the teachings and helping other people to attain enlightenment. And then once they die, they leave the teachings in such a condition that their teachings continue to help other people attain enlightenment. These are the three primary criteria that make a Buddha a Buddha. they will attain enlightenment by themselves as an independent journey. They will spend the rest of their life helping countless people to attain enlightenment. And after their death, they will leave the teachings in such a condition that countless more people will attain enlightenment after the death of this individual who was teaching. So, Gautama Buddha, during his lifetime, he knew he was a Buddha. His students, people who were advancing to a certain degree, they knew that he was a Buddha. But there were other people in the community that didn't necessarily know he was a Buddha because they didn't take the time to learn and understand his teachings. There's no outward appearance of someone who's actually attained enlightenment. It's not like, you know, there's a certain mark on the forehead or there's a a certain color of skin or a certain color of hair. There's no outward characteristic that you could prove that someone is a Buddha. It's all about the training of the inner mind. So over this 45-year period, Gautama Buddha shares more and more of these teachings and countless people attain enlightenment. And then upon his death, more and more people attain enlightenment. During his lifetime, all the teachings were shared orally. It was very important during the Buddha's lifetime to learn the teachings and remember them because every two weeks he would have his students recite them orally, word for word for word. And as the mind becomes more enlightened, you actually develop this focus, concentration, clarity of mind and deep memory to be able to actually remember his discourses and his teachings word for word. And then he reinforced that with having them recite them and chant them every two weeks. This is why we actually do chanting in this tradition is because this is how the Buddha kind of started things off and put things into motion. But then sometime after his death, they actually write the teachings down. And now we refer to that as the Pali Canon. This is the original source text. But the original source text that we point back to as being the original teachings originates around 800 to 1200 years ago. Obviously, they wrote things down either immediately after the Buddha's death or sometime within two to 500 years after his death the exact date of when he actually wrote things down, we don't know when they actually decided to write them down, but it was sometime after his death within the first two to 500 years. But from that point to the point where we have the Pali Canon now, these teachings have been handed down from person to person to person, still in an oral tradition, but ultimately also in written tradition too. And because of the universal truth of impermanence, this is why it's important that you don't believe any of the teachings because teachings can be modified as they're handed down orally or even as they're being handed down in written format they can potentially be inadvertently modified because someone who's attained enlightenment during the lifetime of the buddha they would know what that experience is like and the mind is utterly peaceful calm serene and content with joy they wouldn't have an interest in changing or modifying the teachings, because it was the Buddhist teachings that led to this improved mental state. And now if they're gonna share the teachings, they would like to share them exactly the same way that they learned them, because that's what's actually gonna lead to enlightenment. But inadvertently, teachings can actually be changed little by little by little. So even the Pali Canon that we have today, it's important that you don't believe anything that's in a text or anything that a teacher actually says orally because it's only when you learn the teachings, reflect on them, and practice them to see the truth for yourself that you acquire wisdom. And when you see the truth for yourself and you have this wisdom, now you will make wiser decisions through training the mind and you'll see the condition of the mind gradually improve. This is how you know you're learning the actual teachings of the Buddha. Because if you learn something and you can't independently confirm that it's true, If it's based on rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, you know that that's not the truth. Or if a teacher is asking you to believe what they're sharing, then you know that this isn't the Buddhist teachings because he never asked anyone to believe him about anything. He encouraged people to come investigate his teachings and examine them. And through your own independent verification, this is what leads to wisdom. And then when you observe the condition of the mind improving where discontentedness is gradually diminishing, that's how you know that you're learning the teachings of the Buddha and it's the actual truth because you know what it felt like to be angry in a certain situation. And now that same situation happens, and you just feel irritated. There's no longer this rage or this anger that you experienced before. And then that same situation happens, and you just feel annoyed. You don't even feel irritated anymore. And then that same situation happens, and all of a sudden the mind is just completely peaceful. You don't even experience any annoyance anymore. So gradually as you train the mind, you see this diminishing of all discontentedness and the mind comes into this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy. And that's how you know what you're learning is the truth and you can continue to progress on this path to enlightenment. It's only a Buddha's teachings that are actually going to lead to enlightenment. Because once a Buddha arises and they deliver the teachings, any modifications or changes that are made later after a Buddha's death, this isn't the path to enlightenment. So it's really important that in order to actually experience enlightenment, that we go back to the words of the Buddha and experience what the Buddha experienced. Any changes that have happened through oral tradition or any kind of writings, is only going to mislead people in the opposite direction if you're not actually doing independent verification of the truth to come to the actual wisdom of the buddhist teachings it's through that learning reflection and practice that you see the condition of the mind gradually improving and when you see that condition of mind gradually improving that's how you know what you're learning is the truth in addition to just independently testing and verifying each aspect of the teachings. So what I'd like to do is just pause here before we talk about sickness, aging, and death, because these were the real motivators that led Gautama Buddha into this journey. And there's things that he discovered about these on his journey that will help us to understand this. But before we do that, I would like to just see if you guys have any questions on his life story and what we've been discussing so far. You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom in the comment section, or you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions that way.
2: Hello, teacher. As for the story shared about what happened to Siddhartha Gautama when he was born, it seems that it's a distinguished story. So does this mean that a Buddha is not a human, maybe a unique kind of beings, but not
1: a human? A Buddha is a human being oftentimes people would like to consider him a god or an avatar or unhuman but a buddha is a human being they're just like you and me and everybody else they're a human being who meets these three primary criteria is that they had this independent journey through this independent journey they discovered the teachings that lead to enlightenment then they spend the rest of their life dedicated to sharing those independently discovered teachings with anybody who chooses to learn them. And during their lifetime, they leave the teachings in such a condition that countless more people can attain enlightenment after their death. These are the three primary criteria. But this individual is a human being. They're not going to be reborn after death in the cycle of rebirth. But during that existence, they're a human being. They're a teacher. They're sharing the teachings to help guide others to enlightenment. They've no longer have any craving, desire, or attachment. Their only interest for the rest of their life is to share the teachings that led to their own enlightenment. They're no longer craving wealth or fame or any of these other things, these material possessions in life. Gautama Buddha learned, as sits heart of Guatama, that living in the palace and having these royal riches and all this wealth isn't what's going to lead to a peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy. He had all the wealth. He had all the fame. He had all the power and credibility of being a monarch. And that isn't what leads to a peaceful life and a joyful life. So having left that, then once he experiences enlightenment, a Buddha is going to only be interested in sharing their teachings with those people who are interested to learn. But they're doing it as a human being they're still in physical form, they're still breathing, they still have lungs, they still have a heart, they still have a personality, they still tell jokes, they still have fun, they still have enjoyment, but they don't have any of those discontent feelings that would drag you down into the mud and feeling all this negativity and all this burden, all this stress and anxiety that gets carried around in the unenlightened state.
2: Well, was it necessary for him to attain enlightenment to leave the palace i mean that is it necessary for everyone to attain enlightenment to leave this life and go to the forest
1: this is what the buddha did but that's not what everyone needs to do what we need to do is benefit from his experience you know he chose to go off leaving his family and go off into the forest and that was the way that he chose to experience enlightenment. And at that time, he probably didn't even really understand 100% of what it took to get to enlightenment. He just knew that he needed to let go of these things that he was holding on to as part of the royal family. And one of the best ways to let go of something is to distance yourself from it. So by him going out into the forest and living this very basic life, as pretty much a homeless person in the forest, roaming around accepting donations of food, clothing and shelter and water and medical care from others, he was able to separate himself from all those things that his mind was holding on to. And that was able then to help his mind to let go of them. And that's not what everyone needs to do. You need to let go of the craving, desire, attachment in the mind, but you don't necessarily have to go off into the forest to be able to do that. The more that you understand what a craving, desire, attachment is, and the training is part of this path, you can eliminate it even through living a household life, that you can eliminate all of that. But you just need to be very diligent and very disciplined about your practice, where when you're out in the forest and you have nothing around, you know, you have to train the mind to let go of The simple pleasures in life. But for us living this household life, we're surrounded by all these pleasures. We're surrounded by all these influences. We're surrounded by all these things. So we have to be very diligent and very disciplined in our approach to how to progress towards enlightenment. And we can do it from the household lifestyle, as well as someone can do it from the ordained lifestyle as well. But ordaining doesn't guarantee that you're going to attain enlightenment. It makes it more conducive in certain ways, but there's also challenges in the ordained lifestyle as well. So there's pros and cons with the household lifestyle, and there's pros and cons with the ordained lifestyle as well.
2: Is it true that the Buddha didn't come back again to his wife and son?
1: After he left for those six years and he attains enlightenment, he ultimately makes his way back to the region of the world where his family was. This story that I'm sharing with you, the life story of the Buddha, is in the area that we call Nepal today. That's where he was born. And then he taught and kind of spent a lot of time in where what we call northeastern India today. In these sites of the Buddha's birth, his enlightenment, his first discourse, and his death are actually all still identified as being there today. So you could actually go visit his birthplace, the actual place where he was born. You can visit this tree, which we attribute this tree to being where he actually attains enlightenment, but he really attained enlightenment gradually over these six years. And he actually talks about uh, attaining enlightenment over multiple lifetimes, right? So even though we say he attained enlightenment under this tree, he talks about it as a more gradual progress. But we identify this tree as where he actually attained enlightenment. And then the location where he delivered his first discourse and his death, these are all places you can go visit today. But he ultimately makes his way back to the area where his father's kingdom is, and various members of his family actually start joining him to become ordained. His son is the very first novice who joins him, a novice is a person who isn't yet ordained. They basically practice alongside of ordained practitioners, but once they become 20 years old, then they fully ordain as an ordained practitioner. His wife ends up joining him to become a female ordained practitioner. His stepmother is the very first female ordained practitioner who asks to ordain with him. And there's cousins and other people like this to the point where his father actually came in despair, pleading with the Buddha to stop accepting people from the royal family, because his father was really attached to this kingdom and the royal family and wanting this family to continue. And all these family members were observing how peaceful the Buddha was, and they were all leaving the royal family to come join the Buddha. And the father, the king, thought that his family was going to fall apart and the kingdom was going to fall apart so he pleaded with the buddha to stop ordaining people from the royal family and the buddha implemented a guidance at that time that said if you're going to ordain you need to have the support of your mother and your father and if you're married you need to have the support of your life partner If you have children you have to have their support essentially they have to agree that you're allowed to go ordain and even today here in thailand this guidance is still practiced so that when they actually ordain your parents or your life partner your children these are all people who cut the first hairs off of your head as part of the ordination and this is a symbol and an acknowledgement that they support you to actually progress and go forward towards being an ordained practitioner and towards enlightenment. Because a child leaving a home or a husband or wife leaving a home uh, where there's life partner, there's children, there's parents, this person, whether they're a man or a female, is providing a certain level of support to the household. And just having people leave without concern of the people that are still in the household, this would put a real strain on the household. So when the Buddha realized this by way of this conversation with his dad, that's when he implemented this guidance and said, if you're interested in ordaining, you need to have the support of your parents, your life partners, your children, and things like this. And that guidance still is practiced here in Thailand today as part of someone ordaining.
2: Well, as for the first miracle, is this the way that a buddha start teachings that a doing a miracle and then the students believe in him?
1: What a buddha will do is they will have an initial group of people that they will perform a miracle for and it's a fairly small group of people. They will perform the miracle to ensure that those people know that they're a buddha. But then from that point forward, they won't perform any miracles. They don't need to perform any miracles because he doesn't need people to bow down to him and acknowledge him that he's a Buddha. It's not about worshiping him. That's not what's going to lead to enlightenment. What's going to lead to enlightenment is people learning, reflecting, and practicing teachings. And a Mm -hmm. Buddha has enough wisdom that they can go from having no students whatsoever, just having attained their own enlightenment, And having deep, profound wisdom, they can go from there to actually sharing the teachings in such a way that their students can actually see the truth for themselves. They don't need their students to believe them. In fact, a Buddha would encourage their students not to believe them. And as the students are learning the teachings of a Buddha, they would be able to see the penetrating wisdom. Of that individual, and they would be able to independently verify it themselves. They may not know that that person's an actual Buddhist still, but they would be able to at least learn the teachings and practice them to the point where they could independently verify the teachings and see the condition of their mind improving. So a Buddha doesn't walk around, you know, with a badge that says "I'm a Buddha." You know, bow down to me now. Uh, A Buddha is not interested in that. A Buddha is interested in encouraging and supporting and motivating people to progress on this path based on their own choices a buddha is not going to force their teachings on the others they're not going to be pushy they're going to accept any students who come to learn with them and then when that person has made the choice that they're interested to learn they're willing to learn they're going to put in the determination the dedication and the diligence that buddha has all the wisdom that they need in order to share the teachings in such a way that that person can independently verify their teachings and then as they progress in their learning and developing their practice that person will see for themselves that the condition of their mind is improving but even still a buddha is not interested in convincing other people that they're a buddha a buddha is only interested in helping guide people to enlightenment there's no benefit in a buddha going around and being boastful and arrogant or egotistical about being a buddha a Buddha themselves has already eliminated all that. They already eliminated craving, anger, and ignorance. They've eliminated the conceit. They've eliminated arrogance. They've eliminated pride. They're not gonna be boastful. So a Buddha doesn't need to perform miracles to convince people they're a Buddha because their wisdom can speak for itself. And they don't need people to know that they're a Buddha. In fact, it actually is helpful if people don't know who a Buddha is. Because if you can imagine today a Buddha arising in the world, if people knew that this person was a Buddha, you'd have a whole bunch of people that would just be in such awe and kind of admiration, maybe even worshiping this person. They would kind of look up to this person as being so high and far above them. And there would even be people who would perhaps be interested to kill this person because they're not interested in these teachings meeting and coming into the world because it means the world's going to become a better place. There are certain people who profit off of fear and guilt and shame and these other things. So, a Buddha coming into the world to help people eliminate this discontentedness of mind will actually negatively impact people who are basing their livelihood off of things like living beings or human trafficking or corrupt aspects of life. So a Buddha doesn't need to go around and convince people that they're a Buddha by people not knowing that they are a Buddha. Then they can more clearly observe their student's mind and actually be able to see, oh, okay, this person is speaking harsh or this person is lacking loving kindness or this person has a lot of generosity. Uh, this person still has some arrogance or some pride this person is practicing equanimity so a buddha can observe the condition of their student's mind much more clearly and much more purely if the students don't actually know that that person's a buddha whereas if they know that that person's a buddha they might actually modify what they do and their decisions based on knowing that this person's an actual buddha so a buddha being very wise, isn't going to go around and try to convince people that they're actually a Buddha. But slowly, but surely, as a Buddha arises in a world, students might actually discover a person who is a Buddha. As their mind becomes more awake and they become more enlightened, they can actually discover that their teacher is potentially a Buddha if they understand how to determine that someone's enlightened. And if they understand the criteria of what makes a Buddha, a Buddha.
2: On Zoom, Jen writes, thank you, teacher David. Would you please offer some guidance on the Jatakas, the tales of the lives of the Buddha?
1: I've actually haven't really read that much of it. So I can't really speak to it very closely because I haven't really read that much of that part of the Pali Canon. I've read the birth story of the Buddha's life. In his early years of teaching and attaining enlightenment and things like this, and of course, his teachings themselves, but all the other details that are part of his life, I haven't really dove into because the Buddha himself, when he talks and he talks about having respect for him as a teacher, he encourages people to focus on his teachings. He doesn't necessarily say, don't focus on my life story but that message is kind of there what he's really interested in for his students to focus on is his teachings because that's what's going to ultimately lead to enlightenment so i share a little bit in this book and i think some other books that i've written as well about the life story of the buddha but very little because what's really important what a buddha is really interested in is ensuring that their teachings come into the world in such a clear and concise and precise way that people can actually attain enlightenment. They're not interested in sharing their life story only to the point where their life story is helpful for their students. Because the more you learn about a life story of a Buddha, you can actually gain some insight from it. So, for example, the Buddha's life story about where he goes off with these other teachers and He's starving himself, hanging himself upside down from trees, doing all these painful things to the body. Well, what do we learn from that? Well, we learn that causing pain to the physical body isn't what's going to produce enlightenment. So when we're in meditation and we're experiencing pain in our knee or our hip or our back, it doesn't make sense to just sit there and dwell in the pain. This isn't what's going to produce enlightenment, no matter what somebody has shared with you this isn't what's going to produce enlightenment so we should adjust our body in order to make the body comfortable we're not interested in the body being painful but we're also not interested in it being luxurious either finding that middle way where it's comfortable so the life story of the buddha is in that section of the pali canon a lot more detailed than what i'm providing today but what i would encourage students to do is focus on his teachings as opposed to his life story because his life story really truly starts when he goes off on this journey to enlightenment and actually attains enlightenment and then spends 45 years sharing these teachings sure he did other things up to age 29 and it was 29 to 35 where he actually goes on this journey to enlightenment and then he starts teaching at the age of 35 and dies at the age of 80. But it's really that 35 to 80 years old where he was sharing the teachings so vibrantly into the world that this is what's important for us to focus on. Because that's what's going to lead to someone's enlightenment.
2: Knowing that the Buddha attained enlightenment on his own, does this mean that everyone should practice and walk the path to enlightenment with our teachers?
1: A lot of people think that way. They think that, okay, the Buddha attained enlightenment by himself, so therefore I can do it too. And this is where someone's trying to emulate the life of the Buddha, because oftentimes people who are coming into the Buddhist teachings, they've been taught to emulate the life of Jesus Christ and that they should actually mimic his life. And this isn't what the Buddha actually taught because if you tried to mimic the Buddha's life, you would never actually get to enlightenment. The reason why he was able to go off in the forest and attain enlightenment by himself is because he's a Buddha. But everyone else is gonna need teachers in order to attain enlightenment. If it was possible for everybody to attain enlightenment on their own, the Buddha would've attained enlightenment and then he would've came out and said, I did it, you guys can do it too, have fun. I'm going back to the royal palace right but he didn't say that what he said was okay let me help you understand how to attain enlightenment for 45 years he spent time sharing these teachings an average ordinary common person wouldn't be able to actually attain enlightenment on their own there's a certain quality about a buddha's mind the person who's about to become a buddha their mind and functions very differently than an average common person It functions the same in terms of it has craving, anger, and ignorance, or the unknowing of true reality. It functions the same in terms of it has the ten fetters. But there's one aspect of a person's mind who's about to become a Buddha that's very different than the average person. They actually have a deep, 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 profound memory that they can actually remember countless details about their current life and their previous lives as well. For all of you, when you think back to your childhood, there are certain things that you can remember here and there, but there's not this deep penetrating memory of your childhood. Because the way that an average human mind works is it gets overwritten. As you progress in life and you experience new things, the mind kind of gets overwritten. The memories from the past get overwritten, much like a hard drive. As you download more files, those old files get overwritten a person who's about to become a Buddha their mind actually doesn't do that they actually retain countless details a really high degree of details about everything in their current life and things from their previous lives as well this is what actually helps them to attain enlightenment on their own it's also what drives them to attain enlightenment because their mind has such a deep, profound memory, their mind is holding on to all this content from this life and their previous lives. When Siddhartha Gautama was growing up at age 10 and 12 and 15 and 16 and 20, he would have been learning things along the way that were ultimately going to help him when he attained enlightenment as he progressed on this journey to enlightenment. He wouldn't have known that at age 10 or 12, or 16, he wouldn't know that he was destined to become a Buddha, but he would have been learning things along the way. And he was accumulating so many things that his memory was so profound that his mind almost kind of breaks when he sees those four observations. When he sees sickness, aging, and death, it's like someone flips a switch and the mind goes into this discontentedness where you don't get any reprieve from it whatsoever. So where an average person might get angry and then it goes away for a while, and then there's some frustration, and it goes away for a while. Once a person who's about to become a Buddha experience something like these four observations, it's like someone flips a switch and their mind is just highly discontent and there's no reprieve. The only thing that will fix it is for them to actually discover the path to enlightenment And that's what's going to ultimately fix it. So this memory that they have, accumulating memory over the course of this life, then when the mind kind of flips this switch and it almost breaks, then they go off on this journey to attain enlightenment, their mind would remember all these little lessons from this life and previous lives to help them actually get to enlightenment in this life so this quality of their mind where they have this deep profound memory is what ultimately makes them very different than the average individual human being that leads to their enlightenment and they have this ability so therefore they're actually able to attain enlightenment where an average person wouldn't be able to do this once they attain enlightenment then their mind has eliminated all the pollution all the clutter but a buddha still has this profound memory that they have as part of their birth into that last life, and they actually become a Buddha. So now that they've purified the mind and they're retaining the teachings, they have such penetrating wisdom because their mind has this deep, profound memory that they can now remember every little tiny detail of what it took for them to actually get to enlightenment. And it really helps them as they deliver the teachings to their students That they have the ability to recall this wisdom from their independent journey to enlightenment. And then, as they're working with individual students and they're learning about their students' life, one of the things that makes a Buddha very effective is not only do they have deep, penetrating wisdom, but they're able to remember countless details about each individual one of their students. Even if they haven't talked to their student for six months, or a year, or two years, or five years, a Buddha's mind is so well refined and it has such deep memory to retain content that after having talked with a student, they can remember that content for that student and countless other students. So therefore, it makes them more capable to be able to help individual students because they can remember countless details about the journey that it took them to get to enlightenment and their individual student's life, they can remember details about their individual student's life to then be able to offer them teachings to help them on their own journey. But an average human being isn't going to have the ability to go off on their own and experience this because the aspect of their mind and the experiences that they've had in this life aren't the same as an individual who becomes a Buddha. And keep in mind that when Siddhartha Gautama went off to experience enlightenment, he didn't pick up his pants and put on his pants and say, I'm going to go become a Buddha, right? He just had this difficult human existence. He had this mind that was having this discontentedness without a reprieve. And he was just constantly experiencing this discontentedness without a reprieve. And he decided to go off and try to fix it. And that's why he started with those first two teachers, because his goal wasn't to become a Buddha or become famous or anything like that. He was just interested in solving his own problems in his own mind. And once he did, and he did that on his own, he realized as part of his awakening that he was a Buddha. And then that's what gave him the motivation and the encouragement. Now that he's experienced this enlightened mental state, this content, this wisdom either dies with him or he shares it with other people so that those teachings can then come into humanity and help all of humanity. A Buddha has such deep amount of loving kindness and compassion for the entire world that once they progress to enlightenment that's why they spend the rest of their life sharing their teachings because of their deep 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 loving kindness and compassion that they have for every being in the world they're not interested in going back to being a king they're not interested in allowing the teachings to just die with them They're very much interested in bringing the teachings into the world so that they can shine in such a way that all of humanity can gradually learn these teachings and ultimately attain enlightenment.
2: That's good Nick, for more questions. Hello, teacher. There's a question from Denise.
0: It's about the uh, first miracle. She writes, Did the animals know or understand that he was a Buddha? Thank you, teacher.
1: We'd have to ask those animals, which isn't possible right now. I would imagine that they didn't because they wouldn't know what a Buddha is in the animal life. But he was able to motivate them in terms of this miracle to be able to come to where he was at. And there's other stories during his lifetime of where there was like a charging elephant. And just through the Buddha's calm demeanor the buddha didn't have fear of course so he was just very calm and the elephant you know kind of stopped short of charging him and actually killing him so there's a lot of different stories like this as part of the buddha's life between the buddha and the animal world right there's always kind of these connections between the buddha and the the animal realm and we see these different depictions in the stories this is just one of those in this particular miracle that occurred where he called the animal so I don't think that those animals knew, but at least the Buddha had enough ability to call them to help those first five aesthetics to understand that he was an actual Buddha. And that's what got his community of practitioners started. Because from that point forward, countless people start to attain enlightenment during his lifetime.
2: Thanks. No more questions.
1: Okay. So let's talk about sickness, aging, and death now, because these are the real big motivators that motivated Siddhartha Gautama to ultimately go on this journey because he was observing this sickness in a person who was sick and the despair and misery around this person and someone who was aging and someone who had died. And there was all this misery and despair and displeasure and sadness around these three situations. And what he ultimately comes to understand is that these things are all impermanence, this universal truth of impermanence. The reason why we experience sickness is because the body can't be permanently healthy. It's not possible because of this universal truth of impermanence. And the reason why we experience aging is that this body is subject to impermanence because it arose, it's gonna change, and then it's gonna fade away. It's gonna experience this aging. And with death, this life is not permanent. So as long as we're born, we're going to experience death. This is the universal truth of impermanence. And the reason why people's minds having you know sadness and having misery and despair and displeasure around sickness, aging, and death is because the unenlightened mind doesn't understand the universal truth of impermanence. The mind is craving permanence. The mind is craving permanent health, and because we crave permanent health, we want this physical body to be healthy all the time. We have this mental longing and strong eagerness for health when there's sickness in the human body. The mind doesn't like that and it becomes sad it becomes angered it becomes frustrated and not only is the physical body sick experiencing this impermanence but oftentimes when we're sick we need to stay indoors we need to stay in bed so not only are we experiencing the impermanence of the physical body but we're also experiencing the impermanence of you can't go out shopping anymore you can't go out and see your friends you can't go to work You can't go do the things that you normally do. So not only are you experiencing this impermanence of the physical body in terms of sickness and health, but you're experiencing the impermanence that you can't go outside every day. You can't go see your friends every day. You can't go to work every day. Those things are all impermanent. So at the time that the physical body is sick, what I suggest people do is be very good at being sick because you're going to be sick. As long as you're in this human condition, you're going to be sick. So when you're sick, be sick. Lay in bed, watch TV, read a book, listen to a podcast, listen to some of these online classes, do some meditation, whatever it is, eat some good healthy food, You know, repair this physical body, give it what it needs. But as long as the physical body's sick, if the mind wants to be healthy, then it's going to be discontent during sickness. And oftentimes when we're sick, this is a time where we're very angry. We're very frustrated because we don't like this impermanence of the physical body. We don't like this impermanence of not being able to go out into the world and do all the things that we normally do. So you need to be aware of that, that oftentimes if you're sick, it can motivate unskillful intention, speech and actions. And now the people around you that are caring for you, whether it's your family or friends or whether you're in a hospital with medical providers and medical professionals, if you're angry and hostile towards these people, your gamma is that they may not take care of you as well. So this natural law of gamma of cause and effect and action and result, it doesn't stop just because we're sick. It's just like gravity. Gravity doesn't stop just because we're sick. It's a natural law. So at the time when you experience sickness of the physical body, you need to understand that there's a likelihood that the unenlightened mind is going to be frustrated and irritated, annoyed, maybe angry or sad. And you need to restrain the mind and not allow it to then experience unskillful intention, speech and actions because this is only gonna come back to harm you. If you talk to nurses and doctors or your friends or family in harsh, aggressive ways, not practicing these teachings, then those people aren't gonna feel as motivated and as dedicated to care for you. And of course, we might think that this nurse and this doctor needs to be dedicated regardless, that's their job. Well, yeah, that's their job and they're trained to do those kind of things, but you'll get much better care if you continue to practice the teachings of right intention, right speech and right action, as well as the others all along the Eightfold Path, which includes right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration. The golden rule with these kind of things is if you don't have something nice to say, then don't say anything at all, right? That's the best thing to do. So when you're sick, know that the mind can get shaken up during that time and really be on guard with the mind, with mindfulness, and ensure that you're doing everything you can to regain your health. But then while the body's sick, ensure that you're still practicing these teachings so that you can get good quality care and you can regain your health. And just know that that health is not permanent. And just like the health is not permanent, When the physical body's sick and you're feeling miserable, you can remind yourself, this is not permanent either. Because the mind craving permanence, wanting permanent health, when it becomes sick because it's craving permanence, one of the reasons why the mind gets discontent is it thinks this sickness is going to be permanent. Even though we know on an intellectual level that it's not permanent, you will get healthy again. But while you're down in that misery with the sickness, the mind oftentimes feels like this is going to be permanent and that's part of why it gets so frustrated and irritated and angry. So the health is impermanent. So when you're sick, it's kind of like, this makes sense, this is impermanence. But then when you're sick, you've got to remind yourself that this is impermanent as well. And the way to make it impermanent more and more is with wise decisions. you know, Taking care of yourself, whether it's medications or whether it's food or water or juices or whatever it is that you need in order to get healthy, you do those things, make wise decisions, and then that's what's gonna ultimately bring the body back to health. But even when you do that, it's still gonna experience sickness again at some point because it can't have permanent health. It's impossible for that to occur. And that's why it's part of this difficult human existence because you're going to be experiencing this sickness over and over then there's aging aging is a natural part of life this is the universal truth of impermanence the problem isn't aging the problem is that the mind craves youthfulness the mind is craving that permanent youthfulness so that when we see a wrinkle or we see a gray hair or we feel some aches and pains in the joints or the muscles now the mind longs for the youthfulness. It craves and desires the youthfulness again, not understanding this universal truth of impermanence. So as this physical body ages, we need to understand that this is natural. Oftentimes what can happen is if there's craving, desire, attachment for youthfulness, someone might go out and try to make a whole bunch of money in order to pay for surgeries and procedures to maintain the youthful appearance. And these things can be very problematic in terms of requiring a lot of work and effort to acquire the money, but then also those medical procedures are not permanent either. While that medical procedure may have this person looking better for five or 10 more years or 15 more years or what have you, at some point, all of that is gonna age too. And you might actually look worse having had these procedures and surgeries and actually experiencing aging along with it. Whereas if you just train the mind that aging is part of the normal process and there's nothing wrong with gray hair, there's nothing wrong with wrinkles, there's nothing wrong with feeling some aches and pains here and there. The problem isn't the impermanence that the physical body is experiencing in aging. That's not the problem. The problem is that the mind is craving permanent youthfulness. And if you fix that problem, and you realize that you can't have permanent youthfulness, then this aging just all makes sense. And you just take it as it comes. And you make wise decisions with the physical body to maintain as much health as you can. But you know that you're not going to look the same at the age of 70 as you did when you were 20, right? It's just not possible. But if the mind's craving that, that's where the discontentedness comes in. So we need to get comfortable with this aging that it's all part of this human condition and we're going to experience it and we just try to do the best we can as part of this aging and keep the body comfortable when we can but realize that it's going to feel some aches and pains here and there that's completely normal and then in terms of death death is a natural part of life the reason why we die is because we were born some of us have been taught that the reason why we die is because this supreme being of God is pulling us out of this life to come be with him that's not true that's not why death occurs the reason why death occurs is because we were born because we were born we have to die this is the universal truth of impermanence there's just no way around that that every single person has to die it's not God that's causing us to die The reason why we experience such problems around our own death is because the mind is holding on and craving and clinging to the things that are here in the world we're craving these sensual pleasures we're holding on to our children our life partners we're holding on to the world wanting the world to be a certain way we're holding on to maybe our house or our car or our job our friends our income our wealth And the more that we cling and hold on to all these things, when it's time to die, the mind's not going to want to let those things go. So therefore, getting close to death is going to be very painful for someone who has a lot of craving and desire, attachment and clinging. So the goal would be to train the mind to let go of all those things. You still have them in your life. You still have friends. You still have family. You still need a certain income. You still might have to have a job and a house and car and clothes. But you don't cling and hold on to them so that by the time you get to death all of that stuff has already been let go of and if you let go of all of these things mentally then you'll experience enlightenment in this life and then you'll experience the rest of this life with a peaceful calm serene and content mind with joy so that when it actually comes to dying you'll be completely comfortable with it because you know it's just part of life Whereas if you're craving and clinging and holding on to things in this life, when it's time to die, the mind's not going to want to go. It's going to be still holding on and therefore it's going to experience another birth and another birth and another birth because it's still holding on and still clinging to things in this world. Likewise, not only do we experience problems with our own sickness, aging and death, but we also experience problems when we see people who are close to us experience sickness, aging, and death. If you have children or parents or friends or other people in your life who become sick, you might have despair and misery and sadness. This is because the mind's clinging and holding on. It's not understanding impermanence that your family members cannot have permanent health. And same thing with our parents. When we see them age, oftentimes, we have a lot of trouble seeing people age in our life. And it's because we're holding on and clinging to those memories of youthfulness for them. And the same thing when people die in our life or getting close to death. If our mind is holding on, craving for this person to be permanent, when they die, you're going to experience sadness and maybe some anger frustration. You're going to grieve. You're going to have sorrow because the mind is holding on to this person, craving for them to be permanent when it's not possible for them to be permanent. Oftentimes when people die that are close to us, we think what's causing the sorrow and the sadness is love. But love is a interest in seeing others be well and peaceful. Love doesn't cause sadness and sorrow. It's the mind craving and clinging, having this desire for permanence, wanting this person to stay in our life permanently. That's what causes the sorrow. That's what causes the despair. That's what causes the misery. So if you can train your mind to mentally let go, practicing true love with all the people in your life, if people happen to die as you progress in life and people start to die, you won't actually grieve. You can actually have the love and the appreciation and the gratitude that is what will come through in your mind and really appreciate the time that you spent with this person. You won't have sorrow and grief because you understand that their death is just part of life. It's part of this universal truth of impermanence. But when we don't understand the universal truth of impermanence and the mind is holding on to this person, when our parents or grandparents or other people in our life die, the mind can become very sorrowful. It can grieve. It can have deep despair and it can feel like somebody's knocked you off at the knees or cut you off at the knees or pulled the rug out from under your feet when somebody dies. You can feel very lost in this world thinking that because this person died that there's kind of no more purpose to actually living any longer. But if you train the mind to understand impermanence and let go and not hold on to people so tightly, when people die or your pets die where things like this, you can understand that that's just part of life, and you can be joyful in knowing that you got to spend the amount of time that you did with them and just have gratitude and appreciation for the life that they lived and the part of the life that you got to participate in. So this sickness, aging, and death is very difficult for the human mind because it's big, significant, drastic impermanence, particularly death if somebody dies that's close to you, it's like one day they're here, the next day they're gone. That's some big impermanence. Or any kind of aging or sickness, the same thing. So if you can prepare the mind and train it on this path to enlightenment the way that the Buddha taught, then this is what's going to prepare you for your own sickness, aging, and death, and for the sickness, aging, and death of the people around you. And I would like to just share this last quote as a way of helping you to kind of understand this path and then also as a way to just kind of end what I have to share with you today and open up to any questions you have is that this path to enlightenment, it's not necessarily easy and it's not difficult either, but no one ever said that life is going to be easy, right? But it's also not supposed to be tough. Life is not easy, but it's not supposed to be tough either. And learning and practicing Gautama Buddha's teachings is not easy, but learning and practicing the teachings of the Buddha will ensure that life is not tough. The reason why we experience this difficult human existence, the reason why we struggle, the reason why it's so difficult, is the mind doesn't have the wisdom of things like the universal truth of impermanence. It's not awakened to the wisdom of the natural laws that exist in the world and it's a real struggle and it's extremely difficult to live in a world that you don't understand as long as you don't understand the natural laws of existence sickness aging and death and a whole lot of other things are going to be extremely difficult in this human existence but by learning and practicing these teachings while it's not easy It will ensure that life is not tough because the more that you awaken to the wisdom of these teachings, you will understand all the various aspects of life and you'll understand these natural laws of existence and you'll no longer struggle and have difficulties. There'll still be challenges in life when the mind nears close to enlightenment and when it's actually enlightened. There still will be challenges. You'll still experience impermanence but the mind will be so deeply trained that you'll know how to deal with it your computer will still crash you will still have a toilet to fix in your house you will still have people that will die around you you will still experience aging and these other things but you will understand it on a deep deep level and the mind will be trained on a deep deep level that these things will no longer shake up the mind because you just understand that it's all impermanence. And as long as you allow the mind to hold on to these things, it's going to be shaken up and experience discontentedness. So this life is not supposed to be easy, but it's also not supposed to be tough either. But it can become easier when you actually progress on this path and you actually experience enlightenment. There's nothing that an enlightened mind is going to be shaken up by no matter what happens, whether it's sickness, aging, and death, or anything else that transpires in an enlightened being's mind, they will just start seeing this as a challenge. And they know that this challenge is impermanent, that it's only a matter of executing some wise decisions to improve this situation. So today I had my computer crashed. I'm using a different computer right now than I normally use. And it crashed and it's you know, all these files and books and content for these classes, everything has been saved on this hard drive of this computer. And of course, there was backups because when you understand impermanence, then you understand, you know, this hard drive is not permanent. So let me make sure I have some backups. So you're still going to experience these kind of things that happen, but they won't shake up your mind and they won't cause this stress and anxiety because you've deeply trained the mind and life is no longer tough. When we were three years old or six years old, life was a real struggle because of this natural law of gravity. We kept falling down. We kept hitting our elbows and busting up our knees and falling off our bicycles and tripping over our shoelaces. And boy, were we crying and we were miserable at different times. But slowly but surely, we started learning about this natural law of gravity. We got the wisdom and we started making wiser decisions. And it's the same thing with the Buddhist teachings. Slowly but surely, we learn these natural laws of existence and we start making wiser decisions as a result. So we choose to start backing up our files or we start making other choices like this because we know about impermanence. And as we do, we make these decisions based on wisdom. Now, life can be quite easy because now it's just a matter of providing wisdom to any particular situation that we encounter and then we can resolve that and we can move beyond it no longer experiencing this challenge but instead the mind is liberated from this discontentedness so I'll just end here with the things that I plan to share with you guys and I'll open up to any questions that you guys have you can put those into Facebook, YouTube or Zoom or you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions that you like
2: well is there any way to help someone who is at their last hours in life, someone who is about to die?
1: The best thing you can do is just ask them what would they like, what do they need, and just give them whatever they need. So my wife's mother, my mother-in-law, we knew that her dying wish was that she wanted to die in her house. She didn't want to die in the hospital. and. When she was getting close to death, she needed to go to the hospital. We didn't know that this was her time to die, but she was unhealthy and we took her to the hospital and it had been a slow deterioration of her health. And the doctors had tried different things and they said, you know, your mom's going to die. We've done everything we can do. You know, We don't know how long she's got left, maybe a few days, maybe a week or two, but she's gonna die. So we knew that if we allowed her to die in the hospital, that this was gonna cause rebirth because she had a craving to die in her home because her home was given to her by her mother. So she had this kind of dying wish that she wanted to die at home. So we made all the arrangements with the hospital to allow us to take her home and just made her very comfortable. And she ultimately died at home, a very peaceful death. So if there's people who are dying around you, it's important to just help them let go. And sometimes the best way to help them let go is just give them what it is that they're asking for in that situation, except if they were asking for suicide. If they're asking to be killed, that's not something you would like to do for someone who's dying because it's going to impact your practice and it's going to impact them too. Because you can actually attain enlightenment in this life or you can actually attain it at death as well. And the ideal goal would be to attain it during this life so that then you can spend the rest of your life experiencing this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. And there's no more rebirth once you die. But even if you experience this whole life and you experience enlightenment at death, that's like the next best thing because at least you're not going to be reborn. So for someone who has a craving to die, if they commit suicide or die by suicide, or they have others help them to die by suicide, this is a craving to not exist anymore. And that craving is going to cause rebirth. Whereas if they didn't have that and they just allowed things to take its natural course and actually die naturally, they might actually experience enlightenment at death and no longer experience rebirth. So if there's a person who's dying, you know, if they are asking for certain things or wanting certain things, it's best to just go ahead and give it to them because that's a way to extinguish the craving is just to be able to experience it.
2: On Zoom, Jeanne writes, I have frequent experiences of physical pain, a result of chronic illness and aging. I get excellent medical care, but I will not regain health. I know very well that there are good days and bad days and not to have expectations, but to take days, to take each day as it is. Most of the time I feel in the middle about things I don't feel, a shook up. But I do get physically worn down by the pain. Can you offer any additional guidance about dealing with chronic pain aside from the guidance my doctors offer?
1: Yes, the Buddha talks about pain as two darts and he says there's this first dart that is the physical pain and then there's the second dart which is the mental pain and the mental anguish and he says you know this first dart we're going to experience that as long as we're in this human condition we can't escape physical pain and that's part of this life but this second dart of the mental anguish because of the physical pain we can escape this, we can eliminate this because that mental anguish intensifies the pain and makes it more difficult, it makes it more intense. So, a person whose mind is untrained, they're going to experience this physical dart and then they're going to experience the dart of mental anguish, and the physical pain is going to be intensified because when they experience the physical pain, they're gonna be grasping for pleasure. And they think that that's the way to solve the physical pain, is by craving or desiring physical pleasure or or pleasures, central pleasures. But if you do that, that's what's gonna intensify the mental pain. For someone who's well-versed in these teachings and well-trained, when they experience the physical pain, that first dart, the way to escape the second art, which intensifies the pain, which is this mental anguish, is just understand the physical pain is impermanent. Don't grasp or crave for sensual pleasures and just understand the physical pain and sit with it, breathe through it, understand that this is part of the human condition. Don't allow the mind to grasp and crave for permanent pleasure or permanent comfort because that's only going to intensify this mental anguish and it's going to create more pain because you're not just experiencing the first dart you're experiencing the second dart too that second dart is experienced because the mind is craving permanence it's craving central pleasures so if you can diminish and eliminate the mental anguish through not having craving desire attachment You'll still experience that first start. You're still going to experience the physical pain, but it can be minimized by not allowing the mind to crave for sensual pleasures.
2: Well, if we experience discontentedness when those who are around us uh, die, this is because we, the mind, have craving to them. So the question is, why some people experience discontentedness? When they see a a cat was crossing the sea and a car hit it.
1: It's the same thing is that there's some craving, desire, attachment in the mind. Maybe it's not to the object, to the person, but they might be craving to only see pleasant things. You know, rainbows and butterflies. And the mind is craving through the eyes to only see agreeable, pleasant things. And then when it sees this disagreeable thing where an animal gets injured and and dies, the mind could be craving to see pleasant things. That's what it's actually craving, not the actual being itself because it doesn't even know the being. It might be craving for all animals to never experience pain. And when it sees an animal experience physical pain, it has problems with that, right? So there's something in there that it's craving. You can't say, A person sees a cat get killed, so they're craving this. You know, it's not a a one for one kind of thing. There's not a permanent answer for all people other than if there's discontentedness in the mind, it's always going to be craving, desire, attachment. Always, always, always. But what the mind's actually craving, is it craving to see something pleasurable? Is it craving to not see animals be harmed? You know, what is it? Could be two, three, four things in there that it's craving. And this is where one-on-one guidance can be really helpful to meet with your teacher when you're experiencing discontentedness and say, teacher, I'm seeing these three or four things that I think are cravings that are causing discontentedness. Here's the situation. What do you think? Is there anything else that I'm missing? Or sometimes it might be, I'm having discontentedness and I have no idea what's causing it. Can you talk me through this and help me discover it? And that's where someone who understands the path more than you is able to help you, to guide you through discovering what it is that you're craving, desire attached to. And then as you do that a few times, then you'll become really good at it. And you won't need to do that with every single time that you experience discontentness, but you'll build this skill and this ability to be able to identify your own cravings identifying your own attachments. This is a skill, just like meditation, you need to build that skill. You need to build the skill to be able to identify the cravings that are causing the mind to be discontent because then once you identify them, then you can work to eliminate them.
0: Let's go to Nick. Question from Denise on Facebook. She writes, Does one
1: have to have a certain funeral or rituals performed at death? as a follower of the Buddha. There is no specific rites, rituals, ceremonies, or anything like that in the Buddhist teachings. What the Buddha used to do when people died, if he was invited to the funeral, he would share teachings to help people, because obviously there's people there that are going to be sorryful and feeling sad or angry or other emotions and feelings, so he would actually teach things like the Four Noble Truths and other things to help people at the funeral to understand death and what has actually occurred. But he didn't have any kind of preparation of the body or anything like this that he taught as part of his teachings that needs to be done in order to kind of send a body off. Because if he had something like that, that would be permanence, right? Like if he had like one set way of how to actually take care of these things, this would then be permanence. So each individual culture, each individual person is going to do things differently. But if you look at Western cultures and what we do during death, we're trying to preserve the body, right? We're craving permanence. We suck out all the fluids of the body. We put in embalming fluid. We put this person in a casket and a stone tomb and all these other things. We're trying to preserve this body because the mind is craving permanence. Well, why do we do that? Well, because the mind's craving permanence, right? But here in Thailand, they don't do that. They understand that the physical body is impermanent, that this physical body is not who we are as a person. They actually cremate the bodies here, and then there's ashes, right? There are people here who practice Embalming the body and burying it and things like that, but it's very few and far between. There's only even one cemetery that I know of in the whole city that I live in here, and it's very small. What most people do is cremate the body as part of that because we understand impermanence, and that if we try to hold on to this body permanently, then that's just going to cause more discontentedness. And eventually, if we continue to bury people all throughout the world, eventually we're going to run out of land. Right. Right now there's places like America that have these big huge areas of land and they can bury people. But places like Thailand and others that are quite small, you know, there's not that massive amount of land to keep burying people. We would run out of land eventually. And other places will too if we continue to bury people. At one time in my life I never thought that I would be interested in cremation, but Once we've died and the mind is separated from this body, this body isn't who we are. I don't really care what people do with this physical body when I'm dead. They will probably cremate it, but it really doesn't matter because this body isn't who we are as a person.
0: Another question from a Christina teacher. She asks, when a patient withholds treatment so they can die, is this considered suicide or natural death?
1: This is natural death because now we have all these medical interventions that we can slow the dying process, but deciding not to partake in that isn't killing yourself, it's allowing the body to take its natural course. Same thing with something like a DNR, which is a do not resuscitate, is during life we can actually sign documents that say should this physical body die, Don't use any medical interventions to bring me back to life or bring this physical body back to life. This isn't suicide. This is being comfortable with death and allowing death to take its natural course. If we were to crave life and crave existence, then maybe we would be interested in extending our life and finding every possible means to be able to do that. But for someone who's choosing to just allow the physical body to take its natural course, And not use medical intervention to either sustain life or to bring someone back to life. This isn't suicide. This is just being comfortable with death and allowing the physical body to take its natural course. Okay, teacher, for clarification, is uh, intervention okay, medical intervention? When when the person is, uh, say, they are um,
0: unconscious and unable to speak, is it okay to give them medical uh, intervention to bring them back? without their okay ahead of time?
1: Yes, if we would like to do that, because nowadays we have advances in technology that we can bring people back to life or we can use medical intervention to extend life. And that can be a choice that we make now that we have that available to us. But if somebody is choosing not to participate in that in terms of as an individual patient, they say, I'm not interested in this medical intervention, just let the physical body die, This is not a suicide. This is someone choosing not to use medical intervention. But if somebody chooses to use medical intervention to extend their life, that's fine, too, because then they get more time to be able to train their mind and get to actual enlightenment. Thank you,
0: teacher.
1: Mm -hmm. You're welcome.
2: Well, I have a question out of curiosity. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now we know that there is a new Buddha will arise. But was this the same? Was this the case at the time of Gautama Buddha? So his students knew that he was a Buddha. Were they able to expect or know that there will be a Buddha who will arise?
1: Gautama Buddha shared during his lifetime that there would be another Buddha that would arise. He knew that. He knew that his teachings were being shared in the world and that they would help countless people during his lifetime and after his death. But he knew that his teachings were going to slowly degrade over time his ultimate goal was to share his teachings with the entire world but during his lifetime it was impossible because all the world didn't speak the same language we had many different languages 2500 years ago and travel throughout the world wasn't as easy as it is today so the buddha described during his lifetime that there would be a new buddha that would arise and that would restore his teachings back into the world in such a way that all of humanity would be able to actually attain enlightenment through gradually progressing the level of detail that he actually shared during his life is not a hundred percent agreed upon there's teachings in the Pali Canon that kind of share to a certain level of degree. But then there's other teachings in other collections of his teachings that give increasing amounts of detail. There's this increasing amount of detail where he explains what's called the five disappearances. And he talks about these five things that will occur that lead to the arising of this new Buddha. And he talked that from the time of his death, which was in 483 BCE, he said it would be 2,500 years when this new Buddha would arise. And that was in 2017 of the current age. And he said that from that 2,500 years of time, that there would be these five 500 year cycles that would occur. And from the time of his death, the first 500 years, he said that there would be lots and lots of people that would attain enlightenment. They would be really deep and connected, there'd be lots of unity, and a lot of people would continue to attain enlightenment for the first 500 years after his death. The second 500 years, he said, people would be really good in meditation. The third 500 years, he said, people would be really good at scholarly work and understanding his teachings in a scholarly sense. And then the fourth 500 years, He said people would be really good at generosity and sharing money in order to propagate his teachings in the world. And then the fifth 500 years, which is what we just ended in 2017, he said that in those 500 years, the ordained practitioners and household practitioners would be arguing amongst themselves about what his teachings were and what they actually are and there would be this just proliferation of arguments and divisions and there would be all this confusion around what his teachings actually were and then that's when a new buddha would arise and restore his teachings back into the world in such a way that people could deeply understand them and all of humanity would be able to attain enlightenment from that point forward so when we look back over the last 2500 years these five 500 year cycles is exactly what occurred. Uh, Right now, uh, we're in that period of time where, yes, ordained practitioners and household practitioners are arguing left and right, you know, complaining about they know the teachings or this person knows the teachings and everybody disagreeing about what the teachings are. You only need to spend five minutes on Facebook and all the different Buddhist groups to be able to know that and know that the Buddha was 100% true about that. Then the fourth 500-year cycle is when people were very good in practicing generosity. This was when a lot of the temples here in Thailand were actually built. People were giving a lot of land and money. When you look at the time frame of when the temples were built, pretty much all of them were built in that time frame. And then during that period of time, the third period where the scholarly works were happening, this is when a lot of the scholarly works like the Dhammapada and commentaries were coming out And were shared and it happened exactly the way the buddha taught and then during the second period where we talk about meditation this is during the period of time when jesus was actually alive and prayer and meditation were actually talked about in the bible quite a bit there's actually 20 different references to meditation in the bible people don't realize this but the holy bible actually has over 20 different references to meditation In the actual Bible and then from all of that you know it's very easy to see that all of that came true so that we can surmise that during that first 500 years there must have been a whole lot of people that attained enlightenment because the teachings were very vibrant in the world with the Buddha having just arisen and all these enlightened beings that he helped to get to enlightenment they would have been able to share the teachings in that first 500 years But because of impermanence, his teachings would slowly decline and degrade from there. So now we're in that period of time where it's time to restore the teachings back into the world in such a way that all of humanity can actually experience enlightenment. And we're at a point in time in history where this is actually possible, because before, with all the different languages and the lack of travel, We weren't able to experience the spreading and sharing of these teachings in a common language that everybody in the world would be able to ultimately understand. But now with English being an international language that is spread all throughout the world, any new Buddha would need to be able to teach in English so that now these teachings can spread internationally through a common language that we all understand. And with airplane travel, with the internet and things like this, we can now share these teachings, you know, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth with the press of a button, pretty much, which didn't exist during the lifetime of the Buddha. So we're now in that period of time where it's time to share these teachings and all of humanity can move towards enlightenment and we can gradually awaken, creating a very peaceful earth or what Jesus would have called heaven on earth. Thanks.
2: to a general writes a teacher David, I have found as an older person who has experienced many close relative death that the most difficult part of the experience can be dealing with the reaction of friends and family. It can be very challenging to be compassionate and loving towards relatives and friends who are in distress. Would you please provide some guidance?
1: Yeah, it's important to understand that if we remove the expectation that we have to be a certain way when we see our family and friends in distress and in discontentedness, that if you get rid of the expectation that you have to be a certain way, then whatever you end up doing, it's correct, right? Oftentimes we feel that there's a right and wrong way to do things. And we're even taught, you know, these standard statements that when somebody dies, the proper thing to do is say, I'm sorry for your loss. Or if you meet a person who served in the military, thank you for your service, right? And we have these kind of standard stock answers that are like permanent replies that we're all supposed to know and we're all supposed to say, and that somehow shows that we have love and kindness and compassion. But I think it's actually just the opposite. If, if somebody tells me that their mom died and my immediate response is, sorry for your loss, you know this is just kind of like a like a robot this isn't really being a person who's got a higher consciousness who's thinking through the situation observing the person's facial expressions their mental condition do they need anything as part of their parents passing away do they need food do they need a place to stay do they need a friend to talk to or all these different things that just a Blanket statement of sorry for your loss, or if you meet a person who served in the military, just a blanket statement of thank you for your service. I don't think it shows the level of compassion or loving kindness that we can cultivate in our mind. So if we remove the expectation that we have to be a certain way, and that there's these certain stock answers that we have to say whenever a certain situation occurs instead we can just reside in the present moment we can see a family member is struggling with something or a friend is struggling with something and we can just be with them ask them questions and see how we can contribute to their well-being and that's what i think a loving kind and compassionate person would do is treat each situation as a unique situation And just ask questions and see how we can contribute to help them out. And in situations where you're learning like you're learning, like you deeply are starting to understand if you've been in this program for any length of time, you're starting to deeply understand what's causing discontentedness. And you may even be eliminating a certain amount of your discontentedness. But yet when you look out at the world and you see your parents and your siblings and your life partner and your children They're really struggling because they don't understand this wisdom. So what the Buddha says, he shares in his teachings, is that if there's people that are close to us that we have compassion for, which is concern for their misfortune, then we should make an effort to help them understand these teachings. But when you make that effort, it's important that you understand that there's skillful ways to do that and that you politely suggest or you might gift them a book you know you might purchase a book and give them a book or you might slowly gradually help them if they're interested to learn but there's going to be certain people in your life family and friends co-workers and others who are highly discontent have no interest in learning these teachings whatsoever and you just have to let go and realize that these people are going to continue to suffer and this is their own choice This is the results of their decisions. And there's nothing that we can do as part of that. We can offer once or twice, maybe a third time spread out over multiple months. But after that, you need to just let go and realize that there are certain people who are just aren't going to experience enlightenment in this life. They're going to need to experience more rebirths. And they've already been reborn many, many countless times in the past having more rebirths in the future. It's just part of their life and what they're going to experience. The only thing that we struggle with in that is that we want to hold on. As we're learning the wisdom of the Buddhist teachings and our mind's getting more and more peaceful, the mind craves permanence. It wants everybody to learn these teachings because you know how impactful they are. You want to save every single person but you've got to come to realize that you can't do that, that each individual person has to choose to step forward towards these teachings themselves. These teachings can't be pushed or forced into people's lives. Instead, a person needs to pull these teachings into their life. That's the only way that this works because if you think about the million and one decisions that you make to show up to class, to read a book, to meditate, to ask questions, all the different things that you do as part of this path. An individual needs to choose to do that on their own by pulling the teachings into their life. There's no way for us to incentivize or force or push somebody to attain enlightenment. And even if we could, we wouldn't be interested in doing it. So what we have to do is train our mind to be able to skillfully suggest or point people in the right direction, or maybe give them a gift, one of these books or something like that, and then ultimately just let go and have no expectations of whether this person reads the book or progresses on the path or anything like that. Because all we can do is focus on our own practice and our own mind. And the way to create peacefulness in the mind is to let go of all of these people that the mind wants to hold on to and realize that they are on their own journey and they have to make their own decisions. And while you're making your decisions in order to get to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, the only way it works is if they make their decisions themselves. Thanks. That's
2: all for today.
1: All right. Well, thank you all for joining for today's class, whether you're joining live or you're watching this on the replay or the podcast or any of those other places that we put this content onto. And next Sunday we're going to be in chapter 20 of this book. It's titled Animal to Human: The Evolution of Our Consciousness. Now that we understand this difficult human existence, now we're going to talk about how the mind has moved from these countless animal births in the past into this human realm and how our mind has essentially been evolving for countless lives in the past. In now that we're in this human realm, how to evolve from here forward and helping you to see more and more of this evolution of our consciousness in the cycle of rebirth. The cycle of rebirth as a whole, I always suggest to people to put that to the side when they're first starting this journey on this path to enlightenment. But now, if you've been studying this program for about six months is where we're at in this particular iteration of the program it's the right time to start talking a bit about the cycle of rebirth and helping you to understand that so we're going to talk about it in relationship to what we experience in the unenlightened mind and how this multiple animal births have conditioned our mind in this human existence to almost function like an animal and helping you to be able to see that more and more clearly And then Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation as part of our meditation on Wednesday. So you're welcome to join for either of those two sessions or both of them if you'd like. In the meantime, have a very lovely rest of your day. Have a wonderful time spending with your family or friends, remembering to always be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. Because as you do, you put out that good, wholesome intention, speech, and actions. That's what will come back to you. We'll see you next time. Have a wonderful day. Sawadiha.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment.